Well, let me invite you to open your Bible to Luke at chapter 10. We're marching verse by verse through the gospel of Luke. We've made it to chapter 10, and um, we are making good progress. Uh, many of you know that I grew up in Oklahoma. Now, how many of you have not had the privilege and the opportunity yet to visit the great and glorious state of Oklahoma? Uh, let's all pray for these people that have been deprived. Well, anyway, that's where I grew up. Now, there's a phenomenon that happens in Oklahoma that you're probably aware of, more than any other place on the earth, there is this event that happens periodically called a tornado. Now, a tornado in Oklahoma has an effect of sucking everything around it into the tornado and then transforming that which is sucked into the tornado and then shooting it back out. Now, whether or not you realize it or not, what you have stepped into this morning is a gospel tornado. Gospel City Church is designed to suck you in, spin you around, transform you, and then shoot you back out. We've been learning the answer to the most important question that was ever asked. Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And once you know the correct answer, you are the Christ of God. That sucks you in, that transforms you, and then it shoots you back out so that you ask this question, who does Jesus say, I am. And we're learning today that he says, I am an everyday missionary. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm a missionary. Did you know you're a missionary? You say, I'm not a missionary. Oh, yes, you are. If you know the answer to the question, who do you say that I am? Now you are on mission with Jesus. Did you know that Jesus was the greatest, the ultimate missionary of all time? What's a missionary? A missionary is someone who leaves the safety and the comfort of home, things that are familiar, and comes into a hostile environment, learns the language, and delivers a message he was sent to deliver. Jesus was the ultimate missionary who came to where we are. And now because he came to where we are, we are missionaries going to places to make him known. And so who does Jesus say I am? He says I'm an everyday missionary. I want you to see that here in Luke chapter 10. Here's the first point of the message. Everyday missionaries go where they are sent. Verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. Some of your Bibles may say 70. Some of the ancient manuscripts say 70. Some say 72. The best manuscripts, we believe, say 72. So 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he sent them, where he was about to go. These were 72 nameless missionaries, nameless disciples. How many disciples did Jesus originally have? have? We know the answer, right? Twelve. And do we know their names? Yeah, their names made the Bible. Here we are, and we're now introduced to 72 others. Their names didn't make the Bible, but what's happening? How did 12 turn into 72? Disciples make disciples. So the multiplication is happening as it should. Verse 2, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go your way. Behold, 
I am sending you out. Now, before I read the next part, does that, does that encourage you? It's like, Jesus has invited me on a mission. I'm, I, he's inviting me to cooperate and participate with him. How many of you think Jesus could have got that done, got the job done without the 72? Yeah, he's probably, well, not just probably, for sure a better deliverer of the message than the 72. But notice what he did. He invited the 72 to be on mission in participation with him to deliver the message of the gospel. And that's good news. You ought to feel privileged. You were invited by Jesus to do into his work, okay? So you encouraged? I, I have to read the last part here of verse 3. I'm sending you out as lambs into the midst of wolves. Um, have you watched enough National Geographic to know that wolves eat lambs uh, when animals attack? So here's the deal. You're the lamb in the story and you are being sent into a pack of wolves. Who in their right mind would do that? Only those that understand that I am an everyday missionary. Now, there's a lot of things about our church that are very attractive. Not the parking lot, but apart from that, there are some attractive, we, we like to th make things as nice as we can around here. And, and so we want to be an attractive church. I guess the only alternative being an attractive church would be a repulsive church. I don't want to be a repulsive church. But please understand, do you know the difference between being attractive and attractional as a church. We are not an attractional church. An attractional church makes decisions based on what they think could get the largest number of people inside the walls of the church. We are not an attractional church. We are, by contrast, a missional church. An attractional church is one that views church as a landing strip. A missional church views church as a launching pad. An attractional church views church as a place to come. A missional church views church as a place to move from. It's a movement. An attractional church views church as a gathering. A missional church views church as a gathering so we can become a scattering into the world on mission. An attractional church believes evangelism takes place inside the walls of the church. A missional church understands that primarily evangelism takes place outside the walls of the church. An attractional church believes the Great Commission says, come and see. A missional church believes the Great Commission says, go and tell. An attractional church views the gospel as a feature of the church, like a menu item to select from. A missional church views the gospel as the mission of the church. We are a missional church, and so we're designed to be sent out, to be shot out with the gospel message. That's what Jesus has called us to. And so that's why we do what we do. That's why we support missionaries around the world in places like Liberia and Northern Africa and Hungary and Belize and Spain and Prague and Tanzania. Every time you throw into the offering, you're saying, I want to fund the mission 
mission-sending opportunities uh, that Gospel City Church is a part of. That's why we do local missions with transformation, life plan, and try to get into the hardest place in our community. That's why we go on short-term missionaries like the one we just returned from in Puerto Rico. That's why we train pastors and plant churches because we believe the studies that tell us that the most effective means for evangelism and missions is to plant a gospel city church in the heart of a community over the long haul to make disciples. And we want to give you more opportunities to be on mission. You're going to be hearing more about that. My goal is that in the next five years, half of you would have gone on a short-term mission trip somewhere in the world. But listen, all of those things I just described are kind of things that we do in mass in groups. I want it to hit a little more personal at home this morning. How often do you personally engage another person in a gospel conversation as an everyday missionary? Just like these 72. Wouldn't it be incredible if in the next year there were 36 new gospel teams, two by two, going out somewhere intentionally the purpose of engaging people in a gospel conversation. We have four pillars in our church. You know what they are? Unapologetic preaching, unashamed worship, unceasing prayer, and then there's this other one. Does everybody know what that one is? What is that? Crickets. Crickets in the church because you don't know what the fourth pillar is. Listen, you got to know the fourth pillar is. Listen, it's not optional. As a matter of fact, it is the purpose for the other three. There's three, there's three vertical pillars and there's one missional pillar. It is this, unafraid evangelism. It is sharing the good news of Jesus with boldness. Please hear me. If we do not engage the fourth pillar of our church, our church will die a slow death while it is filled with a bunch of Bible fatheads. That is not the mission of this church. If we do not engage the fourth pillar of boldly sharing the good news of the gospel, we will become a petri dish that will stagnate and we will be the last generation of Christians in our community. We must engage the fourth pillar. You say, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm not an extrovert. I'm an introvert. This is very intimidating to me. You say, I, as a matter of fact, I, isn't it illegal now to like speak of these things in public? And don't they put you in jail for that? And if it's not illegal, surely it's rude. You wouldn't want to be rude. And so you just, I mean, you can't be telling people like you've got some like absolute truth because we live in a pluralistic society and that would be so rude. A study was done by the Billy Graham Center for Evangelism at Wheaton College. They surveyed 2,000 people who identified as unchurched Americans. And they asked them certain questions about how they would respond or feel about people that would actually engage them in a gospel conversation. They surveyed them. They asked them if they agreed or disagreed with these statements. Here's one of the statements. If someone wanted to tell me what she or he believed about Christianity, I would be willing to listen, agree or disagree. I want you to notice the statistics. 
75% over the age of 30 said they would be willing to listen to someone talk to them about what they believe about Christianity. But surely not the young people, right? Notice, almost 90% of 20-somethings would engage in that kind of conversation. So why aren't we telling them? Why aren't we initiating these conversations? Here's another thing that they found out. Among Protestant churchgoers, they asked them, do you agree or disagree with this statement? I have a personal responsibility to share my religious beliefs about Jesus Christ with non-Christians. Notice, almost 80% would agree with that statement. But then notice this. Among Protestant churchgoers in the last six months, about how many times have you personally invited an unchurched person to church? Almost half goose egg. That's not even asking sharing the gospel. That's just being brave enough to say, you want to come to church with me? So why aren't we everyday missionaries? Jesus calls us as everyday missionaries to go where we are sent. These 72 missionaries that Jesus sent out were ordinary people. They weren't professional Christians. They weren't trained seminary theologians. They were just marketplace leaders and soccer moms and they were healthcare workers and teachers and students and farmers and factory workers. They were white collar, blue collar, no collar. They were just ordinary people that got on mission with God. Notice the promise that Jesus gave. He said, the harvest is plentiful. There is no problem with the harvest because there's no problem with the seed. The problem is that we don't have enough planters and pickers. Two stages of the harvest, right? You plant and you pick. You know when you're involved in the, as an everyday, everyday missionary, you never know when you're going to get to be the planter and when you're going to get to be the picker. Sometimes in a gospel conversation, all you're doing is planting a seed. And then every now and then, you get to harvest the seed that's been planted by somebody else. You get to be the picker. The average Christian can identify 17 different individuals that played a role in getting the gospel in their ears. Can you think of some people that put the gospel in your ears? Maybe a faithful mom and dad brought you to church, taught you the Bible. Maybe there was a praying grandmother in your lineage that, that prayed the walls of your resistance down. Maybe there was a friend in high school that shared the gospel with you. And can you identify a list of people well, here's the thing. As a missionary, you don't have to be all 17. You just have to be one. But the key is that you are at least one in the chain of people that God is using to get the harvest completed. Jesus said he's sending us out as lambs among wolves. That's, that's a little intimidating, right? I mean, nobody wants to get eaten out there, right? One of my favorite missionaries is a guy named John Patton. John Patton was a Scottish missionary who, in 1858, felt the call of God to go to the South Sea Islands, where two previous missionaries had been killed 
and eaten by cannibals within minutes of getting off the boat. He said, that's where I want to go. Anybody want to sign up for that assignment? An older man came to John Patton and tried to talk him out of it. He says, John, don't you understand? You're going to be eaten by cannibals. To which John Patton said this. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave where you will be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. And in the great day of my resurrected body, it will arise as fair as yours in likeness of our risen Redeemer. That's the kind of gospel confidence it's going to take an everyday missionary to get the Great Commission done. By the way, the island that John Patton landed on in 1858 is now inhabited by 272,000 individuals according to a 2009 survey. Over 82% of the population of that island identifies as a Christian. Because one everyday missionary overcame his fears and went to a place where he had great risk and yet had great confidence in the Lord's ability to keep him safe. Now listen, I'm not saying God's calling you to go to a cannibalistic island, but we are called to be everyday missionaries. Jesus told them to go out two by two. Can you imagine what would happen if we got serious about going out two by two and partnered in a project to have gospel conversations? Think about it. Two by two, that would be one husband, one wife, understanding their marriage is not meant to cannibalize each other but is actually turned outward as a missionary marriage to maybe open their home and their dinner table to invite other people to come in so that we can have a gospel conversation with people who've yet not heard. What if two women partnered together and they started a Bible study in their neighborhood and invited unchurched women to come and just study the scriptures together, the claims of Christ? What if two men partnered together and said, hey, Let's schedule a hunting trip or a golf outing in, what, in between the 14th and the 15th hole instead of cussing and grieving over our golf scores. We actually told these people there's hope beyond golf and we can talk about Jesus during that time. Intentional evangelism. What if your small group, how many of you are in a small group? Raise your hand if you're in a small group. Raise your hand in a small group. You like your small group and that encouraging? What if your small group understood it wasn't just a place where you could pray for each other, encourage one another, and keep each other accountable, and shove your, your head full of more Bible knowledge? What if you turned your small group into a missional community that went on a mission trip together? that adopted a school nearby, or a nursing home, or a prison, or a sports team, and said, we're going to do everything we can to serve in that area, laying a foundation so we can have gospel conversations. Everyday missionaries go where they are sent. And everyday missionaries travel light. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. 
Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. The word peace there is it's not just talking about, I hope your kids aren't fighting in the home. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a shalom, a place where God's presence is so real that there is a peace, a sense that we are right with God. It's not just a horizontal peace. It's a vertical peace. So he says, peace, this is our prayer, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. And if not, it will return to you and remain in the, house, in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide. So he's saying, like, if you didn't like the food in one house, don't like check out and like check into another house. You just be content with what God provides. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Wherever, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. So why are all these restrictions on not taking money bags and sandals and like no greeting? Can't we even be friendly? What he's saying is don't be slowed down by your stuff. The number one hindrance to missions is materialism. We won't let go of our money bags. We won't let go of our houses and our homes, and we won't go to the places where we're sent. Now, all of those things can be great tools. Later in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus told them to take all that stuff because it was going to be a longer journey, and he wanted to provide for them. But what we're saying is, don't get encumbered with the complexities of life. He's saying it's a simple journey. Don't let it slow you down. Don't let it com uh, complicate your mission because all that stuff competes for your worship. And we need to make sure there's no idols in between us and the mission. Number three, everyday missionaries get the message right. So key verse, verse nine. Everyday missionaries get the message right. Verse nine, heal the sick in it, in that city, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Notice Jesus gives them two very specific instructions. One, do everything you can to help people with their physical illness. But then make sure you deliver the message so that they can ultimately, ultimately be delivered from their spiritual sickness. They're not just spiritually sick. Actually, they're spiritually dead. And it's going to take a message about the kingdom to help them. So, we are not faithful missionaries if all we do is concern ourselves with people's physical weakness. It's not enough just to hand a water bottle. It's not enough just to serve a meal. It's not enough just to clothe people who are cold. We've got to do that, yes, compassionately as a way to build a platform so that we can verbally have a gospel conversation with them about the kingdom. Notice he says, here's the news. Here's what I want you to say. The kingdom of God has come near to you. That's great news because for so many people that we know, God, the kingdom of God seems such a distant concept, so far away. And here's our message. The kingdom of God has come near to you. Do you understand that wherever you go, the kingdom of God goes with you? So that's what this means. When you moved into your neighborhood, your unsuspecting neighbors had no idea that the kingdom of God was coming closer to them. 
When you go to your algebra class, when school starts, I'm sorry, it's a public service announcement, school starting soon. When you go to your algebra class, do you know what's happening when you walk in the room? The kingdom of God is coming closer to your algebra class. When Gospel City Church was planted 10 years ago, the kingdom of God came nearer to the community that is Michiana. Wherever you go, you are bringing the kingdom of God nearer to you. And you say, well, am I actually supposed to say the words? Jesus says, say, the kingdom of God has come near. Do I say that in my evangelism? We translate that for the modern hearer is this. You know what? We all think we're king. We think we're the king of our own kingdom. Here's the good news of the gospel. You're not king. Jesus is king. He's got a better kingdom than any that you could ever build, but you're unqualified to enter it. And so the good news of the gospel is just Jesus left his kingdom and he came to yours. And he conquered your kingdom by his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. And he's the only one worthy of you saying, you are my king. If you'll bow in submission to him, make him, receive him as king of your life, now you can enter into his kingdom. That's the message of the gospel or something similar. When's the last time you had a conversation with anybody like that? Yesterday afternoon, I was running around doing some errands and stuff. I decided to kind of swing by the church here on a Saturday afternoon. There was a class going on. I was excited to see there was about 20 people that came to our uh, small group leadership weekend and really excited about new leaders in the church. But um, then I went down into the new construction area back here. You know, there's a new administrative offices that are about to open up and in three or four weeks, we're so excited about them. And when I went in there, I was just kind of looking around to see the things that were new and things that were being done. Usually when you go down there during the week, there's like, a dozen workers, you know, banging. There's a lot of noise and everybody's working hard, loud music playing. I went in, I went in there yesterday about 3.30. There was one guy in there working. He was painting. Had a big roller and he was putting the final uh, coats of paint on the walls. He had earphones on and I said, hey, my name's Trent. He barely heard me. And so he pulled an earphone off and he introduced himself to me and, and I said, how long have you been painting? And he said, since 1978. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you've, you've painted a lot of said, have you? I said, have you lived in the area a long time? He's like, yeah, I've been here most of my life. And I said, you must have painted almost every building in the community. He's like, you have no idea how many buildings I've been inside. I said, I bet you've been in a bunch, a bunch of churches, haven't you? He said, yeah, and he named a few churches that he'd been in. I said, well, are you a part of any church? And he said, no. He said, uh, I was baptized as a Methodist. He said, I've been married to a Catholic, and currently I've been studying an Ethiopian religion, which I'm really interested in. And so I heard some more about the things that he was interested in, spiritual studies and things that he was, he was studying. And I just let him talk for about 15 minutes, felt like I made a friend. And, and after a while, I just said, well, can I ask you with all of that study, who would you say Jesus is? Because remember, Jesus asked that of the disciples. That's the most important question, right? Who do you say that I am? And he said, well, a lot of people say he's the son of God. I said, he said he was the son of God. And he went on to explain that he didn't believe there was any one, you know, true, only exclusive way to get to God. And he thought it was very judgmental of, of people to make claims against, you know, the other people. And we didn't have any right to judge. And I just listened. 
And um, after a while, I, I just said, well, can I share my story with you? And I told him about how I grew up, didn't believe anything, didn't know anything, didn't have a Bible, didn't go to church until I was about 15. And somebody began to share with me the story about how Jesus died on a cross in my place as a substitute for my sin. And just that act of love to come to somebody that was ignoring him didn't want anything to do with him. As an only child, I thought I was God. And so, you know, Jesus had to break down those barriers. And, and as a 15-year-old, I gave my whole life to him. And I've been committed to actually getting that message out for the last 36, seven years, however old I am. And I said, you know what? Um, he, he had no idea who I was. He was painting my office. We were in my office. He was painting my office. And, and um, I said, you know, um, he knew I was part of the church. I said, you know, about 10 years ago, there were about 13 people that were so committed to that message that Jesus is, is our king and he died on the cross to save us that they, they decided to start a church. I became number 14 and my wife was number 15. And, and, and that message has been preached in this church and, and so much so that there'll be about 2,000 people that'll come through the walls of this church. That's why we're having to add, you know, space down here. And, and I said, I, I would just love it. You would make my day if you would come to our church sometime. And he may be here to Today. Tim, I don't know if you're here. I'm glad you're here. Um, but it, it, that's the message that we preach around here, and it's resonating, and people are responding, but it's not just a message we preach inside. It's a message we preach outside because everyday missionaries are committed to get the message right. It's not enough just to get it right. We've got to get it out. And it's not just enough to get it out. If you don't get it right, you got to get it right, you got to get it out. But we're committed to that. Here's the fourth thing. Everyday missionaries, shake off rejection and move on. Look at verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, well, why wouldn't they receive me? I'm so lovable and adorable. I can't imagine somebody having a problem with me. No, here's news. Not everybody's going to receive you. As a matter of fact, the minority will probably receive you. But it shouldn't stop you from sharing the message. He says, when they don't receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. So Jesus tells us what to do when people don't receive the gospel. Understand, when people reject the gospel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. Now listen, if you're an offensive person and they reject you, please don't claim that you're suffering for Jesus. If you're just rude, if you're annoying, if you have bad habits and you're mean and ugly and a hypocrite, they are rejecting you. Before someone accepts Jesus, they have to accept a Christian. And so, listen, the only thing we want to offend people with is the gospel. And so, if they are offended by the gospel, it's okay. Jesus says, shake off the dust of your feet and move on. You don't have to manipulate. You don't have to coerce. You don't have to worry. You don't have to soften the message. You don't have to crumble your self-worth and your identity doesn't crumble because haters going to hate. Hate, hate. 
shake it off, shake it off, okay? <laughs> some really good theology and some really bad songs, okay? So everyday missionaries shake off rejection and move on. Number five, everyday missionaries are moved by the reality of coming judgment. And this is really sad. Look here at verse 12. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day, judgment day, for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazon. That was another town. Woe to you, Bethsaida. That was another town. Notice what Jesus says. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, those were two Old Testament towns that suffered the judgment of God. It's if, if they'd seen the mighty works that had been done in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, that was Jesus' adopted hometown. Man, they saw more of Jesus than anybody. They had more access to Jesus than than anybody. But he says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No. You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Hell is real. Judgment is coming. Do you see your friends that you shuffle by every day without engaging them in a gospel conversation? Can you see them in your mind's eye suffering eternally apart from the grace of God? They are enslaved by sin. They are blinded by Satan. They are caught in judgment. And if they do not repent, they will not escape God's righteous wrath. It is that reality that moves us to engage them, to risk the rejection, to risk offending them, to love them enough to say, I've got news that if you don't believe it, it's not going to go well for you. And notice Jesus affirms that you cannot accept God the Father without accepting God the Son. You cannot reject Jesus and try to get to God some other way. He says, if they reject me, they reject my Father who is in heaven, the exclusivity of Christ. Number six, everyday missionaries do not try to make a name for themselves. Verse 17 is kind of funny. The 72 returned. So they'd been sent out. Now they're coming back to give a report on how it went. The 72 returned with joy. And they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus, you should have seen them. We had demons fleeing. I mean, they were so afraid of us because we were preaching the gospel message. And they fled because of your name. Now remember, we don't know the names of the 72. So... They were pretty impressed with themselves. They, they, they may have been thinking, man, we could make a name for ourselves. We could be like professional demon slayers. So Jesus wants to correct their thinking a little bit. Look at verse 18. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Oh, you chased a few low-level demons away, did you? Well, I crushed Satan's head. 
and I'm about to do it again on the cross. And so Jesus says in verse 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. What about the wolves you're sending to us? Yeah, them too. I thought we were lambs. Yeah, but they're not going to hurt you. So verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Their names aren't written in the Bible, but their names are written in heaven. One day we will know their names. And so Jesus says, listen, guys, I don't want you to be so focused on the fact that you've got power on earth. I want you to be focused that I've got power in heaven. I don't want you to be impressed with what you can do on earth. I want you to be impressed with what I'm about to do on the cross that's going to qualify you to do something and to be something that you aren't qualified to be and do, namely to be eternally embraced in a kingdom called heaven which you are not qualified to be in. Don't be impressed with what you can do. Be impressed with what my grace can do. It's not about your name. It's about his name. Disciples, everyday missionaries, they're not trying to make a name for themselves. And then finally, everyday missionaries leave the results to the sovereign grace of God. Verse 20, uh, 21. In that name, or sorry, in that same hour, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to the little children. So you got two groups of people. One who arrogantly think they understand God, they understand the Bible, they're wise and understanding. Yeah, God hides himself from those people. And you got another group of people described as little children, dependent, trusting, needy. Jesus says he reveals himself to them by his gracious will. Which category are you in? Does it seem like you're really smart, but you're very far from God? It's because God's hiding these things from you. You become like a little child, all of a sudden you get the revelation of God. Notice he says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Isn't that incredible? God's will is always saturated in grace and kindness and love for us. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father. No one knows, knows who the Father is except the Son. That's just Jesus' way of saying we are the same person. We are the same God. One God, three persons. It's the, the paradox of the Trinity. But if you want to know God, you got to know Jesus. You can't scoot around Jesus. You can't reject Jesus and accept God. It's one and the same. And then finally he says, And to anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So Jesus sets His affection on us. 
He draws us to Himself by grace, not because He's impressed with us. And then verse 23, Then turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see by grace. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see them, and to hear what you hear and did not hear them. The sovereign grace of God. Do you know what that does for everyday missionaries? It takes the pressure off. The understanding that people's response to the gospel is not dependent upon my ability to speak it. I don't have to manipulate. I don't have to coerce. I don't have to be likable. I just have to be faithful to deliver the message because there's nothing I can do to open their eyes to see what we've seen. Isn't that the way that you came to Christ? He opened your eyes. He opened your ears as a gracious act of His will. And so we trust God's grace to do what only God's grace can do, to open the eyes of people that we simply are sent to. There's a man in our church named Stephen Kuzmer. Some of you may know his parents, Rob and Diane. They've been faithful members of our church for a long time. And this week I learned a little bit more of Stephen's story. Stephen's a young man, single, and he attended Wheaton College. And this week he kind of sent me a an email, a long email about his story. I want to share it with you. He attended Wheaton College and he said, um, before Wheaton I honestly had no thought of missions. He said, my perspective was self-focused and my desires and priorities sadly were on my own economic and physical security and well-being and comfort, like all of us. He said, my mindset was changed as God started unmistakably tugging on my heart and opening my eyes to the world of need around me through a mission trip to Honduras during my freshman year at Wheaton. God flipped my earthly and self-centered priorities upside down and called me to pour out myself as an offering for the sake of others and for the sake of spreading the gospel. I came alive on this trip as my eyes were open to the reality of the need and brokenness that is present in this world. I discovered that building up earthly security and stability all pales in comparison to the much greater eternal joy of serving others and dedicating my life to the kingdom work. He said, I realized that so much of missions is based in relationships and that working with street kids required a long-term commitment to faithfully sharing the love, hope, and truth of Christ with them as they learn to overcome the chains of addictions, abuse, abandonment, and street life in Honduras. He said, we're called to be faithful in going out and communicating through word and action the message of the gospel. There's one street kid named Edgar whom God put on my heart. Here's a picture of Edgar. He said, he put it on my heart very early in my time in Honduras. I walked with him over the course of several years as he attempted to leave the streets and enter our home. They had a group home there for kids trying to get out of the street. But kept returning back to the streets and his addiction to yellow shoe glue. One day, I was out on the streets and I saw him sitting on the sidewalk about a block away from me, sitting helplessly and hopelessly as many people walked past and around him, inhaling a bottle of yellow glue. His hair a mess, his clothes torn and dirty. He was a mess for the world to see and couldn't cover it up anymore. 
in that moment, as my mind was tempted to think about how there were worlds of difference between him and me, God's Spirit impressed upon me that indeed that was me sitting there. I am just as broken and in need of a Savior as Edgar was. Months later, I received a call that Edgar had been stabbed by local gang members and was in critical condition in the hospital. I immediately went to see him. My heart broke as I saw him in this condition, his body covered with wounds. The following day, Edgar told me he wanted to give his life to God and accept Christ as Lord and Savior, and afterward shared with me that he had forgiven those who had attacked him, and that after leaving the hospital, he wanted to change his life and enter our home for street kids. Tragically, Edward ended up passing away a few days later and never made it into our group home. But I was able to rejoice in the midst of the pain as I know that he made it to his heavenly home. Stephen's here. Where are you, Stephen? There he is right over there. Hey, stand up. Let him see how good looking you are. See Stephen right over there? All right, so, so why is Stephen not in Honduras right now? He goes on and says this, Right now, my life looks different than I expected. After getting diagnosed with colon cancer in January of this year and having to leave Honduras and return to the States for treatment. So he's here because he's being treated for colon cancer. As painful and confusing as this season has been, it has opened my eyes to the fact that missions is more of a lifestyle than a specific place or ministry. Do you hear what he's saying to you, church? You don't have to go to Honduras to be an everyday missionary. He goes on to say, I have learned that God can use this hard season as a unique platform on which I give a testimony to whomever God places in my path. Stephen hasn't stopped being a missionary. He's just a missionary in the place God has sent him. Someday I hope you'll go to a place like Honduras and experience a short-term mission trip. God may do the same thing in you that he's done in Stephen and calling you to a specific place to be a long-term missionary, to live and build relationships and share the gospel. But listen, whether God ever calls you to that or not, in about 60 seconds, we're going to leave this room and you are going out into a mission field. And you are being sent to live on mission with Jesus who does Jesus say you are? He says you're an everyday missionary. I want you to stand with me, bow your heads, close your eyes. With heads bowed and eyes closed, would you just first of all thank the Lord for opening your eyes and your ears to the gospel? Would you thank him for the people that delivered the gospel to you? Would you ask him to make your heart as tender and sensitive today as it once was when you first heard the gospel? If you're feeling any sense of guilt, that is not from the Holy Spirit. Our motivation is joy. Our motivation is God's grace. Confidence is not our ability, but it's in God's gracious 
will and his ability to open the eyes of those that are blind to the things that we see. Why don't you just simply tell him, say, Lord, I'm going on mission with you. Give me courage. Give me discernment. Help me to articulate this message that's changed my life. Don't allow me to pass by the Edgars and the Thames that I'm going to encounter this week. Jesus, thank you for your love for us. And I pray that you would continue to give us a love for people that moves us beyond these walls. Give us a confidence in your ability to protect until you're finished with us. Pray that we would trust that you have sent us, even this week, exactly where we're supposed to be. If you want to move us to another place, then give us ears to hear that and to move. I pray, God, that you would be at work and that we would see the kingdom is nearer to this community because of this group of people living on mission with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.